In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. You know, when we open up this passage this morning, we come to the the second of of the people that Jesus ends up in a lengthy conversation with. The first one we've looked at over the last couple of weeks was Nicodemus. And you'd have to work hard to come up with two more opposite ends of the spectrum. Nicodemus was a person that he was in the social elite. He was respected among his people. This woman is very disrespected. In fact, it says she comes in the sixth hour, more than likely counting from 6 a.m., the beginning of their morning. And so she's coming at noon. She's coming in the heat of the day. That's not the time when people would carry water. People would carry water in the cool of the evening, the cool of the morning. She's also coming to a water source that's a little bit uh, farther out than other water sources that are in that area. So it looks like she's working pretty hard to be left alone. Gathering water was considered women's work in that culture. You can imagine that as most of them are doing at the same time of day because it's nice and cool, it became kind of a socializing spot. Right, as they're sharing the news of the day as they fill their pitchers and that kind of stuff and, and then carry it back in. And, and this woman apparently didn't want to be any part of that. She was ostracized from that group. She was looked down upon from that group. Well, Nicodemus was the other end of that spectrum. He was the rabbi that everybody wanted to hear his point of view on everything and to listen to and to greet. And he's a Jewish person, 100%. 
where she's a kind of a mixed race. The Samaritans, and we'll get into it a little bit farther in, in, but they were kind of a half Jew, half Gentile up in that area. And so, they, and they were heavily looked down on by the Jewish people. And she's somebody that's worked very hard to try to have a spotless life, to be acceptable before God. And she has lived a life bathed in immorality. But you know what is an interesting thing is, both were confronted, confronted by Christ, but Nicodemus came to Jesus. You know what? Jesus went to her. And Jesus goes out of his way to go tracking down to her. You know, it reminds me of about 30 years ago, there became a real push within churches to have what they, they called a seeker-sensitive service. To where they, they, they figured there's a whole bunch of people out there that are just are seeking God, that, that would like a relationship with God, but they just maybe don't know how to have it. Um, people that are that are looking for something, but the church isn't giving the question, the, the answers to it, or, or isn't uh, formatting it in the right way. So they decided to have kind of a push toward making everything that's happening inside the church more palatable to them. Let's start doing some things inside the church that uh, the lost people outside the church will be attracted to and will maybe want to come and listen to or come and sing those kinds of songs. It never really resonated with me. I, I thought... You know, I, I totally want to reach everybody that we can reach. But you know what? When we're coming and gathering together, we're gathering together to worship. And when we gather together to worship and know God, then it seems like we ought to be more concerned about what God thinks than about what the average person on the street thinks about it. And so I thought, I'm not just, just not sure that we're hitting at it from the right perspective in that way. Even within that, if you're, if you're going to try to make yourself appealing to people that don't have the Holy Spirit inside and don't have that tempering their delights and things, then I think you could get yourself in a lot of trouble. The other problem I had with it was, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10-11 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so I found myself a little bit perplexed on how to look at this. I thought, you know what? The Bible tells me that nobody seeks for God in and of their own flesh. But actually, the Bible says that we have to be drawn to God. So in other words, it's actually God seeking us that takes place. So is there anybody that you can legitimately call a seeker if the Bible says nobody seeks after God? At the same time, there are statements about Christ, like in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, where it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Responding to the Gospel is really not about us seeking God. It's about God seeking us. The Gospel is all about Jesus entering into our world. He coming to us. Him seeking us out for salvation. Him working in our hearts to draw us to Himself. It's, it's actually Him that's doing the seeking as our Savior. And that's what we are seeing as we look at John chapter 4 here this morning. Is We're getting a good glimpse of our seeking Savior. And you know what? Just as we did when we kind of hit that conversation with Nicodemus, I found a lot of questions that were being answered. Uh, I would say as we look at this conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well, we see some other questions being answered as well. And the first question that comes up is, who's seeking who? I think there is something that makes us think that we're seeking God. And you know what it is? I think it's that we recognize that there's something missing in our life when we don't have it. You know, the Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. So there's this longing. Some people call it like a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And so when we recognize the absence of things, then we start trying a lot of things. And that's what this woman had been doing. And so you, maybe you could call her a seeker in the sense that she's probably recognizing that there's something missing in her life. And she's trying to find a way to fill that void like all people do. But it's actually Jesus who is seeking her. The passage starts out with Jesus saying He's going to go from down in Judea, which is the region down around Jerusalem. He's going to go from there up to Galilee, which is up north, 
Right in between Judea and Galilee is Samaria. Now there's three different paths that you can take. You can follow the coast and go out by the Mediterranean Sea and come up. You can go over into Perea, over across the Jordan River and come up that side, which would take you into Gentile land. Or you can go right up through Samaria. Now, when you look at the map, you'd say, well, Jesus says you've got to go through Samaria. Well, of course you would. Right, The closest distance between any two points is a straight line. And the only straight line goes right through Samaria. But you know what? The Jews wouldn't see it that way. The Jews would much rather take the coastline. They would even rather go through Perea into Gentile territory than go into Samaritan territory. Why do they hate the Samaritans so bad? Well, they had quite a history with the Samaritans. It goes all the way back to when the nation of Israel split. And the first king was Saul, and then David replaced him. He was a good king. And then Solomon was a king. that He was the son of David, and he followed David. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And when Rehoboam became king, there's 12 tribes of Israel total. Two of them were in the southern part of, of Israel in Judea. And the 10 northern tribes encompassed the rest of Israel. Well, the 10 northern tribes sent representatives down to Rehoboam and they asked him. They said, you know what, your, your father Solomon was pretty hard on us. If you just lighten the load, just relax a little bit, we will serve you gladly. But if you don't relax a little then we don't even feel like part of the nation. Well, Rehoboam decided to get some advice, so he goes to the guys that had counseled his father. The older guys told him, you know what? Your dad was pretty hard on him. Relax. Take it easy on him. They'll serve you faithfully. You'll have no problems. And then he turned to the guys that were his age. And with the guys that were his age, he says, what should I do? And they said, tell him, my pinky is going to be stronger than my dad's thigh. Right? Your thigh. I believe it's, I think it's the biggest muscle in your body. And his little finger. In other words, what is he telling them? I don't know who you are. I think you are coming before the king like this, but you haven't seen anything yet. And so they said, well, then what do we have to do with Israel? And they left and they split the nation. And a guy named Jeroboam became the king of the northern tribes and they called that Israel. And Rehoboam remained king of the southern tribes and they called that Judah. Now, both nations had trouble. The ten northern tribes, they fell into worshiping other gods. They intermarried with the people around them and ended up getting carried off into captivity up into Syria in about the year 722 B.C. Well, the two southern tribes, they were slower at falling into that bad stuff, but they nevertheless caught up eventually. And so at about, I think it was about 580 B.C., they got carried off into captivity over east into Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years and then they were allowed to come home and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and get things going again. The ten northern tribes never really came back. We kind of refer to them as the lost tribes of Israel today. In their captivity, they didn't stay separate. In the captivity that went into Babylon, you read about people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People that would not give up their distinctiveness, would, would be, remain faithful to God. and Not so much with the ten northern tribes. And so that whole area up north ended up becoming a very Jew and Gentile mix. Kind of a spiritual half-breed, physical half-breed kind of a thing all at the same time. And so the people that had stayed faithful in the southern part of the kingdom, they looked at the people of Samaria as like almost worse than the Gentiles. Because these were not just people that were Gentiles by birth. These were people that were unfaithful to God and intermixed with the pagans and, and with their worship and everything. And so they looked at them as worse than the enemy, but traitors. And so they really, really hated them. Well, what happens is, when the nation split, Jeroboam that was leading the ten northern tribes, he got nervous. In 1 Kings chapter 12, it says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold 
And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did it in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. He's worried. He says, if they keep going down to the temple and worshiping, the nation's going to come back together and I'm going to be killed. And so what does he do? And he just appointed different high places. He says, you can worship here or you can worship here. We're going to put priests at these places. We're going to build temples at these places. You can offer sacrifices at these places. What is he doing? He's just making it convenient. They invented their own holidays. And then that's what ended up leading to the Samaritan people. Well, what happens later is that when Judah gets to come back out of the Babylonian captivity and come back to Israel, when they come back to Jerusalem, they're going to rebuild the temple. And you know what happens? The Samaritans, they want to help. And we find in Ezra chapter 4, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezahadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so what happens is, the people of Judah get to come back out of their captivity the people of Samaria. And then when they came back to rebuild the temple, they came down and said, hey, we've been worshiping the same God for all this time. Let us help you. Let us come back and help refurbish the temple and worship with you. Now, kind of like what it's saying is, look, we're all worshiping the same God, just doing it in different ways. Let's work together. And the people of Israel said, no, we're not doing that. And so then what happens is that they start trying to discourage them. They start making fun of them. They start uh, threatening attacks. And they, they go petition the king to try to get the king to stop them from doing the work. So kind of to make a long story short, Samaritans were a group that kind of intermingled with the people around them, were less faithful. And so they were looked down on, looked at as traitors by their people. And then when the people came back to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans wanted to meld back together. And they were denied. And so they became very bitter enemies. And they hated one another. That's why you see things like in Luke chapter 9, in verses 51 through 53, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is traveling. He's just getting started into Samaria, heading down through there. He sends a few disciples ahead to buy provisions and get stuff that they needed for the trip. And they found out Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. Nope, if you're on your way to Jerusalem, we're not going to help you. You can't buy anything here. You know, So that's kind of the hate that they had for Him. You see the hate going the other way. In John chapter 8, and verse 48, it says, The Jews answered Him. He says, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so they looked at the Samaritans as being demon-possessed. In fact, we found writing from like A.D. 66 where the Jewish rabbis taught that the Samaritan women were like, um, you know, there's an unclean during the monthly cycle. They said they're perpetually on that cycle. They're unclean all the time. 
Another uh, writing from back at that time referred to uh, the people in Samaria as those stupid people from Shechem. And so there's this real animosity between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. And so when this woman of Samaria, when Jesus says, give me a drink of water, and she's like, what are you doing asking me for a drink? An Orthodox Jewish person would never ask a Samaritan for a drink of water. Why? Because the very cup that is owned by a Samaritan will pollute you if you drink from it. Jesus is breaking all kinds of cultural norms. He's a man that's talking to a woman. Husbands often wouldn't even talk to their wives in public. He's a Jewish person asking for from a Samaritan person. But you know, here's the interesting thing. Here you got this woman with her heritage and her background and everything. She's somebody that's very shunned within society. You know, Jesus goes out of his way to meet her. Why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? It's not because it was the shortest distance between two points. He needs to go to Samaria because he wants to go to that well because he knows that woman is going to be there. That's who he's seeking. Who's seeking who? Clearly Jesus is seeking her. In fact, later in the same passage, and he tells her the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. She's not a seeker. She's just lost. Christ is the one seeking. It was the same with me. I wasn't seeking. He was the one seeking me. It's the same thing with you. It's the same thing with every case. Remember last week we talked about who is this being born again experience for with Nicodemus and we said it's for the world because Jesus is for God so love the world that He gave His one and only Son. That's proving that right here. Not only does it go to Nicodemus and the religious leaders, it's for everybody. Well, then there's a second question that begs from the passage and that is, Who's the thirsty one? Because Jesus is in His humanity. Obviously, He's parched. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. And He comes there and he's, it's hot. It's the middle of the day. And He sends the disciples ahead to go get food. And Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. And she says, why would I give you a drink? He says, if you would have known who it was that was talking to you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you the living water. And she says, well, what are you going to draw with? That well is like 100 feet deep. That well. In fact, it's the deepest well known to the area. It's a pretty awesome thing when you think about it. They've been drinking out of that well for like 2,000 years. You know, it's an amazing thing too. She's the first person that he just openly proclaims who he is to. She's the first person that he tells, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And he says, look, if you drink from this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. You see what he's talking about is he's talking about a satisfaction. You know, without Christ in our life, there's a dissatisfaction. It's like there's a thirst that is never quenched. It's like there's a hunger that's never satisfied. And we don't really know when we're lost in that condition. We don't really know what's causing that. And so we we start to fill it with other things. We start to fill it with hobbies. We fill it with possessions. We fill it with money. We fill it with relationships. We fill it with work. We fill it with drugs or alcohol. There's something missing. There's something that we're thirsty for. There's something that we're hungry for, but we don't know what it is. And so maybe we even try a lot of those things. Bounce from one thing to another to another. For this woman, it was relationships, clearly. Because when Jesus tells her, go get your husband and bring bring him to me. And then we'll talk about it some more. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. Obviously, there's something lacking here. There's a void that she's trying to fill. There's a, there's a thirst that she hasn't been able to satisfy. And Jesus says, you're at the right place. Or at least you're with the right person. I'm going to give you that thing that's missing. I'm going to satisfy that thirst. You know, this is not a new concept to them. Psalm chapter 36 and verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
In Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We talked even last week with Nicodemus. We talked about how Jesus used water with Nicodemus as well, being born of the water, even the Spirit. And and used water as an analogy of that spiritual life that would take place within him when he entered into the new birth. Now with the woman at the well, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, look, that water in you will, will turn into a fountain flowing. What is, what is a fountain but an excess of water? What is a fountain but, but whatever is holding it has more than it needs and it just flows out all over the place? That's the, that's the whole point. You know, when we think of Psalm 23, Psalm 23 starts off with, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the main theme of the whole chapter there. Because I have such a great shepherd, I will not be in want. I have what I need. I am totally satisfied. That's what he's saying. Then he keeps up with the analogy. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's how a shepherd gets the sheep what they need. And David is writing this and saying, you know what, the Lord is my shepherd. David had spent many years shepherding sheep. He knew how to provide for the sheep. He says, you know who my shepherd is? My shepherd is the Lord. And because I have such a great shepherd, I don't want for anything. When we get to verse 5, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He's saying, God, because you're my shepherd, I've submitted to you. I have all that I need and more. I'm overflowing So is David satisfied in his life? Satisfied in his relationship with God? Yes. Why? Because Christ is satisfying. He is ultimately satisfying. You know, I remember the day I invited Christ into my life. I'm not saying that you don't have up days and down days and that kind of stuff, but but my life has been full of satisfaction. Never for a moment have I regretted putting my faith in Christ. Never for a moment have I been dissatisfied with God since the moment that I believed in Him. He is very satisfying. You know, even when you look toward the end times, he continues to use this analogy of water to describe how satisfying the kingdom of God is. It says when the day of the Lord comes in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8, it says on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue summer as winter. And then when you get up to the like the book of Revelation in chapter 7 and verse 17, it says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. just gives this picture of our eternal state with God being us being completely satisfied with everything that we have in God. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, as you get right toward the end of the book of Revelation, he's going to say basically the same thing twice. It says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Chapter 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And so you know what? All through the Bible, even up into the end times, it uses this analogy of water and it quenching our thirst and satisfying our longings that we will put our faith in Christ and live for Christ that we are satisfied in Him because He is ultimately satisfying. But you know what the problem is? The problem is we try to satisfy it with so many lesser gods and they never satisfy. Look at all the different addictions that are out there in this world. Why are they addictions? Because this little thing that you did when you first tried it doesn't stay satisfying. 
And so you get to a point where you're in bondage to it and still trying to heighten the experience by more and more or more powerful, more powerful or bigger and bigger or more perverted and more perverted. But whatever that is, it just grows. Why? Because those are, and those are signs of being outside of the kingdom of God. Why? Because if you're inside the kingdom of God, you're satisfied in Christ and you don't need those things. You know, even back in the Old Testament days, in the days of Jeremiah, in chapter 2 and verse 13 of his book, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Notice the comparison of those two things. What would they have in God? In God, he says, the fountain of living waters. All you can have and more, continually fresh. Right? That's the whole point of a flowing stream, or a running brook, or a shooting fountain. It's always fresh water because it's on the move, bringing new all the time. But they've traded it for what? Cisterns. Cisterns. What is that? Sitting water. You fill it and then there it sits. And while it's sitting, what is it doing? Well, it's getting warmer, starting to stagnate. You leave it long enough, can have a little green stuff floating on the top. And he's saying, you know what? You've traded the clear running overabundance of a fountain for a cistern. And not even a good cistern, a cistern with holes in it that leaks. In chapter 17 of Jeremiah also, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And you know what? We have the same choice before us today because not only was it written for Old Testament Israel, but when we get to John chapter 7, we're going to learn in depth of another experience of Jesus when He walks into the temple. It's going to be at a time when they have this little ceremony where they celebrate the living water. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus asked her for water because he was thirsty but which one was really thirsty she was she'd been drinking from that stagnant cistern for too long and she needed something but she didn't know what it was and jesus through the course of this conversation guides her to exactly what she needs which is him Uh, jesus then leads her in the process of bringing her to himself what does he do he confronts her sin and that answers the question who is the sinner obviously she is it's kind of interesting because in our day, in a lot of churches, if that woman came down the aisle at a church or went up to a pastor or somebody afterwards and said, you know what, I'm, I need something in my life. I need that in my life. That's often a point where we'd say, okay, well, that's, that's great. Maybe show them a couple Bible verses. Repeat after me. Let's say this prayer. You know what, Jesus doesn't do that. He knows she's not at that point yet. What does He do? He says, go get your husband. Bring him back. Why? Because you can't turn and embrace Christ without turning away from your sin. It just, it's like oil and water. They don't mix. You have to let go of the one to, to cleave to the other. You can't put your faith in Christ and live in your sin. It's just oxymoronic at least. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9-10 through 10, You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before Me in this house which is called by My name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. He says, you guys sin all week long and then you come in Sunday and you sing your praises of me and then you walk back out and you do it all over again. What this woman needs is not to tack more religion onto her life. What she needs is repentance and faith. That's what she needs. She was getting to the point where she's like, you seem like a prophet. Let me ask you a question. We're told we're supposed to worship here. Remember that the nation dividing and building the other altars? When they got rejected from helping build the temple in Jerusalem, they went and built a temple on Mount Gerizim. said, fine, we'll build our own temple. We'll do it ourselves. 
She said, no, between those two temples, now there's the one in Jerusalem that got rebuilt and there's the one at Gerizim that we worship at. We say we worship here. You say we should worship down there. Which is it? Well, she asked it at the one point in history where it's changing. He says, look, the Jewish people are right. Salvation's of the Jews. That's the temple that you worship at. What they were doing was wrong. But he said, you know what? Right now, it's changing. Why? Because a greater than the temple was here. A greater than Jerusalem is here. And so Jesus is the truth. He is that temple, as we've already talked about. He is the way that we worship God. We have the Christ. We have the true dwelling of God with man in Christ. You know what? In these two stories, the story of Nicodemus and the story of this woman at the well, we see two very different ends of of many different spectrums. The point is Jesus is seeking them all. He is our seeking Savior. He's the one that comes after us. And you know what? There's a dissatisfaction that is built into who we are until we come to Christ. Nicodemus tried to fill that emptiness with Bible knowledge, with social clout, with moving up the ladder among the religious leaders of the day. The woman at the well tried to fill that longing with relationships, one broken relationship after another broken relationship. Many people try to fill it with many other different things. There's not one of those things that will bring satisfaction. There's not one of those things that will quench that thirst. They'll only cause a greater thirst. The only thing that will provide that satisfaction is Jesus Christ.